1: Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com.
0: Hello, and welcome to the news meeting where we throw open the doors on the argument that happens in newsrooms everywhere, every day. It's the argument about what should lead the news and what follows, what matters and why. Three journalists are going to pitch their top story of the week to me and we're going to try and make sense of what we know, what it means and perhaps even where it leads. I'm James Harding. I'm the editor of Tortoise. I worked before at the FT, the Times, the BBC and my job in all of this is at the end of it to try and make a judgement on what story really should lead the news. So from Podimo and Tortoise, welcome to the news meeting. It's episode two and I'm joined by three of my Tortoise colleagues who've come each with a story to pitch. Liz Mosley is back. Hello. She's an editor at Tortoise and emerged victorious from the first episode of the news meeting. (laughs) (laughs) You're giggling, Liz, but we know (laughs) that it means so much I'm so (laughs) so thrilled thrilled. (laughs) Andrew Butler is Tortoise's head of social media Hi, James And Dave Taylor is also an editor at Tortoise He's back after his story came second in episode one I'm not sure whether or not that's really a glorious introduction, Dave But that's what it is
2: I mean, I've got a whole strategy to finish second (laughs) every (laughs) week.
0: Of course, this is a bit different to a normal news meeting. You've each only brought one story. And as we all know, there are weeks where we frankly got to come along and pretend that we've got a story that counts. And then there are some where we're inundated with things that really matter. But Liz, Andrew and Dave, you're each going to pitch one story. And then together, we're going to try and figure out what those things mean, what they say about the world in the past week, and perhaps even where things lead. Before we hear from them, let's have a quick reminder of some of the stories of the last week. There's a crackdown taking place in China.
1: They're chanting that they don't want COVID tests, they want freedom.
0: Britain is no longer a Christian nation.
1: For the first time ever, less than half the population of England and Wales describe themselves as Christians. He's in third place. In <laughs> There's been a huge breakthrough in treatment for Alzheimer's. This is so exciting. The progression of early stage Alzheimer's disease can be slowed down.
0: This embarrassing row has blown up after an event at Buckingham Palace.
1: It made us feel like perhaps we're not welcome, perhaps we don't belong here.
0: A lot's been happening this week, but what do the three of you think has mattered most? Let's start with long stories short. In a single sentence, Liz, what have you picked?
1: A big bag of bother at Balenciaga.
0: An alliteration, a fashion story, and something I'm bound not to understand. (laughs) Andrew. The medical world's game of
3: snakes and ladders moves another square. Oh, Nice intrigue.
2: Dave. I want to pitch a story about getting in good trouble... And I've got some tips for you, James, if you get locked up. (laughs) By the way, let's
0: face it, there are too too many journalists who are detained, so probably not a bad idea. OK, let's get into it in detail. Liz, what's your story about?
1: OK, so I've gone for the Balenciaga meltdown, which is a real grab the popcorn moment for I mean you're wearing head to toe Balenciaga this morning James so you're familiar (laughs) with this I know Um, but fashion house Balenciaga huge global fashion house um, global annual sales just shy of 2 billion or something has been forced to make a series of public apologies not just one but a series of public apologies following two scandals relating to inappropriate imagery in its advertising And this story starts with the holiday ad campaign, the Christmas ad campaign from Balenciaga features bags. They make little furry bags in the shape of a bear, cute, but the bear is wearing bondage gear. So the strap which you hold the bag looks like sort of BDSM attire and the ad campaign Uh, they've styled it with children using the bags. So already you're into sexualised or weird and just generally it's a bad call. And then a second series of images for the Spring 23 campaign was discovered, um, which featured the sort of setup. if you look at it at first glance, is a sort of, here's a nice handbag that a hotshot lawyer has used when she's just come back from the courtroom or all the court papers are behind the handbag. That's the kind of idea. But when you look closely at the court papers, they are relating to a, a Supreme Court ruling in the States, a real one, um, which ruled that aspects of the Child Pornography Prevention Act were unconstitutional. So there's a sort of theme that people have whiffed. It whiffs a bit of this fashion house is talking quite a lot about inappropriate sexualized images of children. Like there's something going on here. And what are they trying to say? So, or what's, the, or
0: what's the designer trying to say?
1: So, g- good question. So, the the, the guy um, who is the creative director of Balenciaga is a guy called Demner. He only has one name, like Be- like Beyonce. And since two thousand and fifteen, he went in um, and has been credited with these huge, huge, huge celebrity associations, Kim Kardashian being the main sort of lightning rod of this. She has become his muse. He's on these huge deals. Um, The fashion world, it's heavily rumoured, although the fashion house will never confirm it, that Balenciaga sponsored Kim Kardashian and Kanye West's divorce and that over the course of the period in which they were being appeared together and in public, they wore entirely coordinated Balenciaga outfits. So there's a sort of very unusual and intense relationship between this guy Demner and uh, Kim Kardashian she of course has had to come out after a while and make an, a statement herself because she's known to be Balenciaga head to toe so she's come out and said oh I'm so sorry um it's taken a while for me to comment on this but I wanted to talk to Balenciaga first to find out their position um
0: and is it clear Liz what I don't understand with this is what the designer is is trying to say what the juxtaposition of the as you say cutesy teddy bear images and the bondage the leaning into the line around porn and child exploitation it's sort of is it shocking for shocking's sake or is there something that they're actually trying to say
1: so he to the best of my knowledge Um, He hasn't made a statement. Balenciaga, of course, have made a statement. We're desperately sorry. We've taken the bags off sale eventually. First they pulled the campaign, then they pulled the bags. In relation to the second campaign, they've said, that wasn't us. And they've launched a $25 million lawsuit against the production company, and particularly the stylist, who was responsible for the props in the second campaign, to say... That's on you, not on us. Now, clearly, a spokesperson for said stylist is like, I'm sorry, but I don't know if you've ever worked with a luxury fashion house. They're quite uptight about what goes in their (laughs) advertising. I don't think this was a surprise. But
0: they're obviously hugely influential, a house like that. Mm. They're obviously big names, celebrity, huge amounts of money. What I can't see, and maybe this is because I'm old and possibly not (laughs) entirely as hip as I should be, why does it matter?
1: It matters because anything that popular is important. And the fashion industry is it hang
0: on, hang on, that's a big thing to say.
1: Yeah, I think it is. Fashion, anything
0: that's popular is important.
1: Anything that popular. Oh,
0: anything that popular yeah, is important. Yeah, so if
1: we if we if we take it as read that football is important, which we have talked about a lot, and FIFA is massive and the flow of money is massive, the fashion industry is just the same, it just influences different people.
2: Dave, what do you think? I actually wanted to be um, a deputy fashion editor when I was like at the co-face of news. I just thought, God, that job looks so great. And I had my bluff called when I um, (laughs) mentioned this to a fashion editor and she said, go on then, give me 500 words on pleated skirts. And, (laughs) And I had to sort of shut up. I actually think I could do that piece now. But I think this is obviously a cultural provocation and it's really interesting that insight that it, it, the machine almost compels you to, um, as a as a sort of lead designer, to to get there. As a story, I um, think because it's a cultural provocation, I'm kind of moved to step away from it. But I quite like it when people get in trouble. <laughs> Andrew, what do you think? I like it as a story because it, it's kind of there's
3: so much more to discover, and. Um, when I saw this story seeing it through the prism of social media was was interesting because Balenciaga have 14 million followers on Instagram they deleted everything from their account apart from their one apology and it was interesting Mm. that they've said a series of apologies because actually what they've done on their Instagram page is just put one on there which includes um, the just the kind of a catch-all thing where we say we strongly condemn child abuse. It was never our intent to include it in our narrative materials. Uh, the na- materials were provided by third parties, um, which were um, had reckless negligence for which Balenciaga is filing the complaint. It's kind of a non-apology apology. I mean, you even look at like the, the first line of it, it was saying we strongly condemn child abuse. It's like, yeah, wow, yeah, <laughs> wow. For that. what, what, what a bold statement to make. Is it what, what, what? has interested me though is that it's actually emboldened uh, the, the kind of the darker corners of the internet because people on uh, some parts of social media have looked at it and gone well look we told you these lot are all in cahoots and it's kind of there's been a, a strange link made between one of the biggest fashion houses in the world with kind of oh the conspiracy theorists the whole world is run by pedophile sex rings. Look at it; they're making it blatant now, and it's really it's dark. And it's I was going to add
1: that whiff of conspiracy theory about this whole thing. It's notable that this story has principally been reported by the right wing press. So the Daily Mail has really gone for it in this country. It's Fox in America that have really gone for it. And the the, the last sort of piece of the jigsaw puzzle, if you like, is the Kanye West element. So last month, Balenciaga. St- Clearly and strongly disassociated from Kanye West. He was pictured this week wearing, you know, $1,200 Balenciaga rain boots that he'd stuck a sticker over the logo and shouting, All celebrities are controlled. So there's an aspect of this which is you can't just sort of dismiss it as nothing because, on some level, in the most important and serious ways, it's resonating with ordinary people.
0: Okay, thank you. Let's move on to Andrew's story. What's yours? Yeah, so
3: I said that it's the medical world's game of snakes and ladders moving another square and it's the fact that um, an experimental Alzheimer's drug, lecanemab, has been proven to slow cognitive decline in people with dementia. It's hailed as a, a massive, massive breakthrough um, in Alzheimer's uh, research and drug pr- provision. I think the reason why I was so drawn to it is because this happened 18 months ago and it happened also probably 18 months before that and 18 months before that but this one again seems to be the one and the reason why I describe it more like a snakes and ladders game is because progress is always good I think and we're moving another square along and you move another square along in terms of um, in terms of medical um, advancement and then you sometimes hit ladders and that really advances it but then occasionally you'll hit a snake and then you're moving further and further back down the board but the progress is there, and the progress is is, is good. And so, this drug, um, lecanemab, um, it, it, it's helped a lot of patients in a, in a massive trial um, that spanned eighteen months. Um, eighteen hundred people um, uh, participated uh, a, as well, and it's by no means a, a cure for for Alzheimer's, but it just slows the decline of uh, of, of cognitive um, ability. And um, and and it's interesting because we. We, we hail all this sort of stuff and, and it's brilliant and it, and it looks like it and it will work but then you look into it further and it's like, oh no, what actually needs to happen is a massive radical overhaul of the NHS in, in terms of even providing the drug as well. So we only, um, brain and PET scans and lumbar punctures which are, are, are needed to diagnose Alzheimer's are only given to 1%. Of patients. Um, uh, And so essentially we need a radical overhaul of the NHS. So it's a drug and it's medical advancement but it also taps into healthcare
0: provision in this country. So so we were talking um, earlier, Dave and I about the fact that having a conversation like this, in effect holding a news meeting that's open, just puts all of your journalistic prejudices out there. And I have quite a specific set of prejudices around health stories. That they're either you know, do drink three glasses of red wine a day or don't, you know, sort of not particularly scientific. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Dr. Mosley. You're welcome. And there's a second type, which is this, the the heroic advance, the great moonshot moment in medicine. And the thing that always happens when I hear these stories is I find myself asking, in a way that I don't, if Australia beats Denmark 1-0... Is it actually true? Mm. And so I suppose that's my first question to you, Andrew: is do we really think that what's being hailed as a giant leap for Alzheimer's treatment, and I think there are something like 850,000 people in the UK alone who are suffering from some form of dementia, Alzheimer's being part of that. Do we think it's true? Do we think it is going to make such a difference? Because I never feel as though we know for sure. Well, this
3: is the thing. And, and this is why I compare it to what happened 18 months ago. Um, there was another drug, aducanumab. And it's like, come on, if you're going to make a new drug, try and diversify it away from, guys, from the from on. the brandy. <laughs> so this one's lecanemab. 18 months ago, aducanumab came along. And it was FDA approved as well. So um, in the States, um, it, it got approval from the FDA. But then pretty much as soon as it got approval, Everyone said, "Hang on, no, the science doesn't even match up to this." So doctors were warned against prescribing it, and um, Adjuhelm, which was the drug of Aducanumab, um, essentially flamed out. And in April this year, Biogen's um, CEO Michelle um, Vernatsos, stepped out because of it. And so this one feels different because um, the study behind it seem is seemingly more rigid, and actually they've they've been able to prove that. Um, kind of the, the way that it affects the brain has is different. And I think it's I think it's true because they've been quite open about the side effects. Everything that you read about it is not saying this is the miracle drug. It's yes. saying this is good. It's not perfect, but this is good. And I think that hedging of of being able to say, you know it's all right, it 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 but it and, and also being open about it's not. It doesn't cure Alzheimer's. Really? It slows cognitive decline. Also opens up, opens up another conversation in the fact that most people are not diagnosed with Alzheimer's quickly enough to actually that it will actually make a difference. It kind of gives people hope, mm. and probably that'll be as good as it gets at the moment. Dave, what
2: do you think of this? And um, I, uh, you know, I get really irritated about. Um what a carve-up science journalism is as well, because stories like this, you know, they're all pretty much identical stories in every single outlet, all embargoed for the same moment that comes out of a conference in San Francisco, um, and it's all timed, and they all get the same briefings and the same sources. And, you know, the reality is this story came out in September about this specific breakthrough, because... You know, they press released it and uh, um, it was this company, Isai, I think, the mm. Japanese company, press released it, their share price shot up, you know, so everyone knew the story was out there except it made tiny fragments of business pages instead of becoming this cultural sort of phenomenon it, that it has this week where you can't ignore it. So I'm irritated just, about that, you know. but I but I do think that, um, you know, I'm fascinated by, by the history of... Um, Alzheimer's and the fact that it seems to be, you know, a century and no and no movement. And um, and I don't know if there are any other conditions where such little progress has been made. So I do find I, I would love to read more about the history and understand more about the history. Liz, what do you think?
1: So three three people this week um have um come to me and said, news organisations like you need to work harder to give us good news because we just can't take the, all the shit anymore. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm, I am inclined to agree. With this story... Um, it, it looks on the surface of it like a good news story, but I think it's a really cruel story for reasons that you've outlined, Andrew. Because if you are one of those 850,000 families, you, you just really need for somebody to come on the telly and say there's a pill and you mm-hmm. can get your dad back. Mm-hmm. And and this story looks on the su- on the surface that it's that story, but it isn't. And and for for all the reasons that you've outlined. Um, I kind of share Dave's sentiment in that I I so much want it to be the story that it just isn't, and and for that reason, I'm kind of ick about it too.
0: I think, by the way, Liz, there is something in what Dave says about the way in which science journalism works. Mm. That is completely different to the way in which sports journalism, political journalism, business journalism works, i.e. there's an announcement, everyone agrees the embargo, i.e. the timing of it, and as a result of that, everyone works off the same information, the same sources. And it is a very, very curious... aspect of journalism in free societies that doesn't seem to happen elsewhere i think there's a there, there, there's a big point in that dave i should also i should also by the way tell you that i i had one go at writing a fashion story yeah. <laughs> which was when i was at the ft so i've been sent to shanghai to do you know quarterly gdp figures and you know extruded Polystyrene Plastic Factories. And I got a call from the editor of How to Spend It magazine saying, would you arrange a fashion shoot? I wrote 3,000 words. She sent it all back, every single word. So <laughs> it would be really nice to know what the people look like. <laughs> 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 actually, oh my god! writing anything about that. Uh, so, yes. So I am <clears> your <throat> assistant deputy fashion editor in this new world. Uh, we're going to come to Dave's story Next, I'm assuming that it's 500 words on the pleated skirt, Dave. But, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but failing that, uh, we'll hear the story you've got. Let's take a break first. A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times.
2: Okay, Dave, what's your story? So I said it was about getting into good trouble. And it was um, John Lewis, the American civil rights hero, who had that amazing phrase, never, ever be afraid to make some noise and get in good trouble. And it's sort of a clarion call to... um, direct action and civil disobedience and so I think that's the starting point for something that's been I think one of the running stories of the year and it's this collision really between direct action and government and two things happening this week is a man called Jan Goody who became the first person to be sentenced to six months in prison for um, pleading guilty to causing public nuisance under the new Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Act which is a crackdown on the right to protest. And he's a just-stop oil activist. He climbed a gantry um, at Junction 16 of the M25 one Monday morning in November, and he stopped the traffic, um, and he was convicted this week. Uh, A judge said what he'd done was not acceptable in a peaceful and democratic society. And I I read that, and I thought well that sounds like an opinion not a fact to me and i think there's there's something to be contested in public conversation about that you know how far is acceptable to go in a democratic society and then the other thing that's happened this week is the metropolitan police said that just stop oil protesters were planning two weeks of um, campaigns in the run up to christmas to try and um, bring disruption to london in particular i think but i think it's a you know, what's going on, I think, is there's this collision between direct action, the level of tolerance we all have for disruption, which I think is a fascinating subject, and then the law and, you know, the question of government overreach. I don't know if you remember, when that that bill was going through that became an act in the summer, it um, it stopped things like noisy protesters who were really irritating parliamentarians and... Yes. Um, and there was a whole bunch of um, of uh, clauses added to it late in the day that all got kicked out by the House of Lords. And then, you know, about a month later, the government bundled them all back together and brought a new public order bill, um, which is on the stocks and going through at the moment. And, and you know, it does it does some extraordinary things. It's There have been, admittedly, they're human rights lawyers, but there have been lawyers who've sort of taken a look at it and said, you know, these are... Comparable to the laws that you would see in Russia and in Belarus that that um, bear down on on public opposition, and they also say things like, well, the women 's suffrage movement and all of its tactics would have been outlawed by what's what's proposed and so just to whiz you through a couple of the things, the serious disruption prevention orders that are envisaged in this law would if you've if you've been on two protests in the past five years. You would potentially be able to be banned from attending any more protests, from associating with any named people. Um, they could stop you going to certain areas. They could monitor your online activity, and they could make you sit at home wearing an electronic tag. And this is and all all for having committed no criminal offence at any point. And you you get into the question, I think, of well, what is direct action for? Is it a viable tactic? isn't it supposed to be disruptive? But it's a test of our tolerance, I think. And Dave, what's the politics of all this? I don't know whether you saw over the weekend there was some reporting about
0: how Rishi Sunak's team was looking to respond to Keir Starmer's labelling him as weak. Mm -hmm. This clearly tactical and determined decision on the part of Labour to try and paint the Prime Minister as weak. And the story that came out was that he was going to crack down on Just Stop Oil. And it struck me as an odd show of strength against what is still a tiny and relatively marginal group. But what's the politics of it? Do you think that there is a groundswell of public opinion that's just infuriated by climate activism, and actually is very supportive of the decision taken by the court or the you know, process that's going through parliament?
2: Yeah, I think that, I think there is a high degree of irritation when when the m25 gets closed and so it is an easy um, bandwagon to jump on because you you tap into people's rage in the same way that you know anytime you're having a bad day politically you can talk about small boats in the channel and and you 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 reach a certain constituency and and sort of gin them up so I think you, you could um, you know we all know. How Liz Truss kind of pulled them into her um, anti growth coalition as if they were some sort of enemy within. But, you know, a lot of reasonable people are going to take a position that you know we really want the government to actually do something about climate change mm. and using Ukraine and concerns about energy security to go and um, say you can have more licenses for exploration of fossil fuels seems like an astonishing backward step and you so think- I think there's a lot of so I think there's culture wars politics going on and I think you know although direct action can be um, you know disruptive, there is a huge um, advantage to forcing your issue into the public domain because, frankly, people aren't really talking about insulating homes or rushing uh, more renewables in any other moment than if someone chucks soup at a pitcher. But, But it's interesting to me
0: that you talk about culture wars because it certainly seems that there are people who want to paint this argument as culture wars. And, for example, you know, throwing soup at what was to be fair, a plastic case picture mm-hmm. felt much more stunt-like. This is much more around whether or not, you started with John Lewis, mm-hmm. whether mm-hmm. or not climate activism ends up being our generation's version of the civil rights yeah. movement. And I w- wonder whether or not if that's the case, then the calculation which is to clamp down on this is going to be the politically wrong side of history, mm. r- wrong one to be on, or ally immigration, not the one that perhaps you know kind of progressive liberal newsrooms might like but definitely where the popular vote is where Where you could win elections
2: yes so i i think that's why i'm absolutely fascinated by it and gripped by it as as what i think is the one of the running stories of the year where you're seeing politics government overreach the law and all of the freedoms that you know um that people like to espouse being called into question and and frankly the fact that none of us seem to be really engaging enough on what will you know we'll all look back on as the you know the issue of our time Liz what do you think
1: I think two things about this particular story um first thing actually I should credit where credit's due Dave and I had a brief chat about this yesterday <laughs> Um, and the observation was, isn't it interesting how differently we feel about protests in our own country, country than protests elsewhere? So the Iranian women are absolute heroines. Look at China, but can you not shut the M twenty five, please? Yeah. It's actually really annoying at Christmas. <laughs> yes. it's, a, it's a different thing. So that's that's one observation that I think is interesting. And the, and the second thing is um, there there are there are lots of people who can very comfortably articulate: I have sympathy with the cause, but I don't like the the tool, the mechanic of direct action. And if there was a branding job that I'd really really like to do you know before I've said yeah, I really want the branding job of the church I think that's a brilliant branding brief I I'd, I'd re- after I've done the church I would do just stop oil because when you when you hear the spokespeople for this organization they are sanctimonious they are patronizing and rude and that is you, you can't do that in this country especially when you know that you've already got a, a, a really big and important I don't know if it's a majority but a really big important part of the population who agree with you they just find you irritating mm. yes you, why, would, why? you would
2: start with their website, by the way, and I mean, some of the language on there yeah. just oh,
1: come on, I we're mean, just
2: so it's, superior.
0: Oh, it's dreadful. Andrew, what do you think about Dave's soft spot for rude sanctimonious protesters?
3: Well, I I empathize w- with him. I think the thing that <laughs> s- sticks out for me most about this particular story is that um, Jan Goody's uh, protest happened in November and he was sentenced in November, and something about that kind of s- sticks. It's like sticks with me because everyone
0: else's justice is
3: delayed. Yeah, on this particular case, and and it feels to me like accelerated performative justice because it's like everyone knows there's a massive backlog in the cause, and then oh, it's so funny. The the thing that caught a load of attention at the start of the month, he's already been sentenced for at the end of the month, and that for me says something about the way that you know that justice can be served if if people want it to be.
0: All right. Well, the way this works is that you now have to say which story you think should lead the news. But in a way that is unnaturally self-denying for journalists, you can't choose your own. So, Andrew, why did not you go first? Which would you choose? Purely because of the amount of music lyrics that mention
3: Balenciaga <laughs> that might in future have to now be censored, I would
2: choose the Balenciaga story. Dave? And purely because I want Liz to buy me the home candle for £425 <laughs> with the refill for 90 I'm going to go with the Balenciaga as well. Oh. Liz. It's
1: sanctimonious oil protesters, no question.
2: Okay, here's what I think. What you've heard here
0: is one of the things that I absolutely love about being in a news meeting is that moment where a story that you didn't even know about goes from feeling extremely marginal, even eccentric to being something of central importance that no one is thinking about and that is why, to cut to the chase I would go protest Balenciaga Alzheimer's partly because actually if you have a running order it's good to have different changes in terms of tone and tempo and obviously the Balenciaga story is actually a story that's just absolutely fascinating, one of those stories which every level you look at is more confusing, more perplexing and somehow more telling and it's definitely the case that the Alzheimer's story needs to be there something significant has happened but we're just trying to calibrate what so for this week's news meeting good trouble bag of (laughs) bother BDSM (laughs) teddy bears (laughs) and um, much needed advances in Alzheimer's Well, that's it for this week's news meeting. Thank you to Liz Mosley. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew Butler. Thank you. And thank you to this week's, I'm not sure we should say winner, but let's say what it is. Let's say winner.
2: (laughs) Dave Taylor (laughs) for
0: breaking the stories. And thank you most of all to you for listening. Who knows what the next week is going to bring us in terms of the news. But whatever it is, I'll be back here with three more journalists. And they'll be trying to pitch me and persuade me that they've got the story that really should lead the news. Thank you for joining us at the news meeting.